Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I'm in college and my buddy, Peter, a playwright, sends me a Vanity Fair article about the Dominican man that James Bond was based on, Porfirio Rubirosa. And my entire world is shattered because, like I said earlier, I was running around my building pretending to be James Bond with all my Nerf guns on all these missions. I was pretending to be a white British guy and it clicked. What if I wasn't pretending to be them, but I was allowed to be myself? Or my father, you know, this character I loved as a child looked like me, looked like my community, looked like Queens, looked like light, looked like so many people that are not a white man. And then, and then it's like I saw it. I just saw my difference in this world in an instant, like that article in an instant revealed so much to me. Why am I one of the only bodies of culture in this school? What does that mean? the weight of it, the weight of difference. I started to feel it. It was really sort of shocking. Hello, friends. I want to welcome you back to The Light Watkins Show. If this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, They've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And today I'm in conversation with one of the most talented and brilliant storytellers that I've ever heard, Mr. Christopher Rivas. As many of you longtime listeners know, I used to produce these inspirational variety shows called The Shine. Between the years of 2014 and 2019, and we did them all over the world, Los Angeles, New York, and London, and that's where I first connected with Christopher because he opened the show for us a couple of times. In fact, here is a clip of one of those openings. So I traded one drug for another, and I became addicted to happiness. I convinced myself I would become so happy, happy by any means necessary that I would never have to fear again. Right? Because that's why we're here. That's why there are 84 million pieces of scripture dedicated to happiness. That's why there are over 40 smiley face emojis. Praise hands, prayer hands, smiley face with the sunglasses on. We all just want to be happy. No more fear, no more worry, no more doubt. Happiness. Anything that will quiet the noise. So Christopher is a professional storyteller. He's been teaching other people how to tell stories in his storytelling workshops that he's been conducting for years. He's also a podcaster, and his podcast is about as unique and specific as they come. It's called Ruby Rosa, and it's an episodic show that details the legend of 
Porfirio Rubirosa, who is said to be the Dominican diplomat and Latin lover that author Ian Fleming allegedly based his famous 007 character on, also known as Bond, James Bond. And ever since learning this profound information in college, Christopher, who's half Dominican and half Colombian, and who had been low-key obsessed with James Bond ever since he was a kid, had this full circle moment because he discovered that the coolest, baddest spy of all time was based on somebody from his same Dominican heritage. And this led Christopher to create a one-man show called The Real James Bond Was Dominican. But that's not all. Christopher also became a daily meditator in a very funny way. He basically lied to an attractive woman that he was an avid meditator because she was a meditator. And he managed to hide the fact that he actually never meditated a day in his life long enough for her to become his girlfriend. So you can imagine his surprise when she gifted him for his birthday with an airline flight to a 10 day silent meditation retreat. And while it was indeed a struggle ever since that silent retreat, Christopher actually did become a daily meditator. Later, he wrote a New York Times editorial called I Broke Up With Her Because She's White. And that ended up going viral. And most recently, Christopher's first book, Brown Enough, has come out to rave reviews. It's an excellent read, if I must say so myself. And you can also catch Christopher on a popular television show called Call Me Cat. And so in this conversation, Christopher and I talk about the art of code switching, and he shares this game that he learned from his father when he was just a child to size people up. Uh, We talk about what famous Dominican actor inspired Christopher to create his own one-man show based on James Bond. We talk about the African-American author who inadvertently motivated Christopher to pursue his mission of going all in on his brownness and being brown enough and how he stumbled upon the obscure article about the real James Bond. We talked about the logistics of how one creates a one man show and when and why Christopher slept in his car for a period of time. We talked about why his friends called him the white girl whisperer and how he handled hate mail from his viral New York times editorial. We talked about why everything is a story And what are the elements to a good story and how his podcast has evolved. And as usual, our conversation was jam-packed with other awesome stories and insights. And I know you're going to get a ton of inspiration from listening to it. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to the storyteller himself, Mr. Christopher Rivas. Christopher Rivas. Is it Rivas? Yeah. People say Rivas. I I thought it was Rivas all this time, but but I heard people pronounce it Rivas. Rivas. You can roll the R if you want. Rivas. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) Christopher Rivas. It's good to see you, man. It's been a it's been a minute. It has been a minute. You've been traveling the world. Yeah. I think the last time I actually physically saw you was at the Soho House in West Hollywood when me, you, and Megan all met up there for a tea. Way back before the world got different. And way, way, way Turning back. back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. But we first met at The Shine. You, you've been to a few of The Shines to share your art, your spoken Are you still word. doing that event? I talk about that event all the time. It was great. Yeah. No, I mean, when I went nomadic, we put it on pause. And that was obviously right before the pandemic as well. So it may come back. We don't know. We'll see. But 
It was great. Those were fantastic. Yeah. And I still, your, your performances were some of my favorite. Actually, you were the first one we would bring in to just open the show with no announcement. And it was just like the perfect way no to get context. everyone's attention. Okay. Yeah, no context. Because people will come there. They, have, they would have no idea what it was or what was going to happen. And so so that's kind of how we met. I'm, I'm trying to remember, though, how you came into the fold. Was it through Megan or was it? Maybe it wasn't Megan because I don't know. That's a great question. I remember the first one was in Culver City. And, and I'm not Roll. sure if I met Megan after that. Yep, Rich. And I'm not sure if I met Megan after that or... Megan brought me in. Yeah. But I just remember I was like, oh, this is so tight. And then the the giving of the money at the end to someone to mm-hmm. do it was just great. It was just an, a wonderful evening. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are now talking about what's been happening with you since then. And there's been a lot going on. And this is one of the great pleasures I get out of hosting this podcast is doing deep dive research on people that I may just know peripherally, like I, I kind of knew you and I kind of knew your work back then, but it was so awesome to go back and read your whole story and just to flesh that out. So now I'm really excited about digging into the past and unpacking some of your motivations and your inspirations for how you became who you are today and what you represent today. And of course, you just released your book, Brown Enough. So we need to flesh that out and talk about what that actually means. <laughs> Yeah. It means a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take it back, man, to Forest Hills, Queens. Early days, you, your sister, your parents, family of four growing up in this melting pot of a building. And your parents were the supers of the building. So for people who don't live in New York, what does that mean? Someone's a super of the building. Yep. My pops was the super. My mom worked at like a OBGYN office, but my dad was the super and superintendent, the porter. The handyman, I think like whatever, the building manager, but in New York, it's the super. Everyone knows the super, knows their super in New York. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's an East Coast thing. I'm not 100% sure. Just I've never heard that until I li- moved to New York. And of course, you know, like I wanted to put an air conditioner in my apartment one time in Harlem and I had to go through the super. The super <laughs> shovels the snow. The super salts the sidewalk outside of the building, make sure the trash goes out, you know, whatever is not happening. Oh, and collects the rent. Yeah. <laughs> super collects rent. So and hopefully it gets Christmas gifts. That was my dad's day. You know, like you want that air conditioning in on time and you want all the <laughs> stuff. Like, <laughs> think of me during Christmas. Back in those early days, I heard you mention on a, on your podcast, on the Ruby Rosa podcast, you said as a kid, you liked being in the boiler room and watching the fire and all that. You've also told stories about pretending like you were a spy. What were some of your favorite toys or activities as a child? Or was it one of those two things? Yeah. So one of the joys of having a Pops as the super is I, I kind of went into all the crevices and cracks of the building. You know, you go to mm-hmm. the compactor room, even like where they... For people who don't know, in New York, a lot of buildings have trash chutes. So everyone was throwing these bags, these trash bags down these chutes, and that goes somewhere. And there's this insane, incredible machine, the compactor, that like takes all this trash and freaking whatever force crushes that like into a little box that can then go in a in a bag. And I would be in there. I don't know why I would hang out in these places. The boiler room, I loved it so much. Like, imagine just one giant thing like 
fire blazing thing at all times that's giving heat to a, hundreds of families and people and keeping us warm. I think I was fascinated by that. That like if this one little thing goes out, everyone's upset. Everyone's cold. And I did. I would be in the boiler room a lot watching the fire because I would just, I would just, damn, it's like it's hot in there. This one thing is keeping these many people warm. All these little rooms in the basement. My dad had a shop room. He had a storage room. I would play in the storage room a lot. You know, we we got to keep stuff down there. I would run around down there. I would roller skate downstairs in the basement. We had room. It was just really cool to have access to all of that. It, it helped my imagination. It helped me be the little kid who, you know, you listen to the Ruby Rosa podcast. I loved creating adventures with my Nerf guns. And, and instead of just doing it in my apartment, you know, pretending I was some spy or some assassin, I would do it in the building and I would run around and I'd hang around crevices. And, and I didn't care if people saw me because everybody knew me because I was a super kid and everybody, it felt like actually had love for me. You know, there was no hate in that building, which, which seems like such a blessing, but also such a rarity because I don't really know my neighbors now. I don't think a lot of us know our neighbors. And I don't know if that just happened because my pops was a super or because it was a different time where we knew our neighbors. And I think about that a lot, like community. Who's living? They're technically kind of living with you. They're not living with you, but they're living with you. And what does it mean to know our, our community and our neighbors in that way? So that was a really special time that's super impactful. Like you said, the melting pot. Queens is a melting pot. I think it's actually one of the most diverse places in the world. Jackson Heights, where my grandma lived, we actually know is the most diverse place in the world. That is saying something. That's incredible. Every food, every culture, every religion, every person, every hip, every flavor is in Jackson Heights. And that is so incredible. Can you talk about your cultural yeah, your heritage, your background? My pops is Dominican and my mother's Colombian. And we're New Yorkers. Well, my mom was born in Colombia, so she's an immigrant. Came here as a little girl. My dad and I were actually born in the same hospital in the Upper East Side, New York Women's Presbyterian. But then he spent a lot of time in the DR. And they are two sort of young kids who grew up in New York who had a baby very young and were figuring it out. They're huge inspirations to me of what it means to just keep moving forward and make something out of nothing. Mm -hmm. I call them like my alchemic teachers, you know, alchemy 101. And culture is a big part of my work. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that at some point in my life, I woke up to the idea that I was like, oh, I have a feeling my culture is far more than just good music and good food. Like when I was a kid, I knew I was these things, but I didn't get the history of them. I didn't know what it what it meant to what's in my blood as a Dominican or as a Colombian. And now as I've evolved and asked bigger questions about assimilation and pretending and what it means to be a body of culture or a first gen kid in this world or second gen, what do we lose when we're trying to make it in America? What did our parents lose that they didn't give to their kids? And so I ask those questions a lot in my work, especially as a Dominican. It's like, oh, and my blood is one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. Trujillo against the 30,000 Haitians. And my blood is anti-blackness. In Colombia, same thing, you know, taking all the black people and shipping them off to Cartagena and calling it the Chocolate City, which we once called D.C. And I think culture is really important, not just to be like, damn, my culture is beautiful. My culture is this and this, but like, oh, no, my culture is violent and sad and depressed and confused. And if we understand our culture from beginning to end, the way you sort of describe this podcast, right? Like, I want to take the journey. 
you know, and you work in mindfulness and meditation and all of this, it's really about seeing what really is the whole spectrum. And I'm interested in that in my work going deeper. Were these conversations you had as a child with your parents? No, no. That's why it's like a late birthing, late need, late desire, whatever you want to call it. Because I did not have these conversations. What was some of the ideologies or philosophies that were echoed in your house to you and your sister growing up that you remember? Oh, we just were. There were no ideologies. You know, like literally my parents were just. Because they were salsa dancers where they like, life is a party. Let's just, you know. Yeah, you know, they were dancing in the house, right? Like, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. They they danced in the house. We, you know, we got Colombian breakfast twice a week. We got a Dominican breakfast, you know, but we also ate frozen tortellini. And we lived in New York. I lived in Queens. So I was eating hummus every day at the Greek spot on the corner. And then, you know, I had Chinese food over here. And like, they just were, you know, these are two people who before I was born were living in a studio apartment in New York with a mattress on the floor with my sister. And then I come along and my dad gets this job as a super, you know, thank God, free rent, you know, but I didn't have my own bedroom until I went to college. I didn't even have my own bedroom because I was living in a dorm. Like, you know, they went from a studio to a one bedroom to a two, which means my sister got a bedroom, but I had to partition off the living room. They were just hustling. Like, Was he college educated, your dad? No, neither of them were. So was that important for them? Like, we want you and your sister to go to college and... Yeah. You know, the American dream, right? That's what it says. It sells you that. And, you know, that's a big part of my work is I think America is the first pyramid scheme. Like, I think, I think America, uh, American, American, the American dream, right? That's the chapter mm-hmm. in the book. Like, I, I think they sell you something, but then they want to do nothing to support you. They say, mm-hmm. like, you need this and the most expensive education, but do you? And so my parents, of course, they wanted us to go to college because that's what happens, right? If you raise your kid hard enough and you work enough jobs, you know, at one point my parents were working two jobs each and I rarely saw them just to buy their first house and just to maintain this middle class perception, you know, of the American dream, of the con, of the pyramid scheme. Work hard to give us the money we lent you just to give it back to us. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. 
That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Who would tell you you had bad hair and you were Moreno as a child? You know, but it's jokes, right? They tell you, but it's it's ha-ha funny. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a line in my play that says, uh, who here hasn't been called big nose by someone we love, right? And it's a joke. It's a, all these jokes that are, are these hurtful things that are disguised as jokes. Like, you know, so if, if Chris has the thickest hair in the family, which I did, it's like, oh, he must be adopted. He must be this, you know, or he's the biggest lips. Or, it's a joke. And later on in my life, you're like, where do those jokes come from? Why do we maintain these jokes and think they're funny? And why does this narrative exist? And why does my black grandmother not think she's black? Like, where does that really come from? As a kid, how did those jokes affect you? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's more unconscious than conscious, but they affected me a lot. You know, it's also because I was a kid who got a lot of my education from the television. I wanted to be like the boys on TV and the boys on TV didn't look like me. And they didn't have my thick hair and they didn't have my lips or my nose. And they just didn't have, they didn't have the big ears that, you know, like they didn't have me and my features, nor did they look like my pops. And so when you hear those comments and you're like, the only way I get to the TV or have a story worth telling is if I look a certain way and sound a certain way, that affects you. You know, those things build self-hate in you without you even being conscious of it, without you being aware of it. Last night we did a we had a little event, and, you know, I was telling you, I had a book reading and a woman started crying about something that happened to her on a playground at eight when someone asked her what color she was. That was 37 years ago. And she's still crying about it. Like, yeah, she didn't know it hurt her then. <laughs> you know, 37 years later, she's finally in a space where she can share it with people. You had a very life-changing moment as a child as well. There was a friend of yours named Danny. Can you talk about what happened with Danny and how that affected you, your perspective? Yeah. So Danny was my best friend, brother, human in the whole world. He was probably the first person I learned to love that wasn't my me or my immediate family. You know, he was, he was my first love. And we spent every possible second together that we could. And right before Christmas, he got hit by a car and died. And first love, first loss at 13 years old. A loss that was, I mean, devastated me. Like, devastated me. A loss I didn't have the language to talk about. A loss that I don't actually think my parents had the language to talk about or hold space for. I think in general, as a society, we don't really know how to be there for grief and loss and, and death. It really did a number on me. It did a number on my emotions. A lot of my emotions turned into anger. I wasn't angry. I was a lot, really angry after that. I started a lot of fights, punched a lot of things, yelled a lot. My demeanor changed for many years. And yeah, I mean, that was a huge shift in my life. It was also a huge shift in that building, right? That was so important because he lived in that building too. Everyone lived in that building. Y'all, my godfather lived in that building. My godfather's boyfriend lived in that building. (laughs) Like my dad's mom lived in that building. My dad's sister and her kid lived in that building. You know, our friends, my best friend, my sister's best friend really was a family. And so the whole building lost a child. 
you know, I lost my first love and the whole building lost a child, not to mention his parents who lost a child. And so it's also one of the first times, you know, I didn't have language for this then, but I saw what communal grief was. Yeah, it was my first intimate moment with loss and grief. And I didn't have a way to make space for it. And I'm still learning how to make space for those kinds of moments now. You know, it's funny, my my younger brother, he's got a kid. My younger brother used to deliver food for this fast food restaurant. When his kid was very, very little, like barely able to talk, you would ask him, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, I want to deliver food like that. <laughs> 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 you know, kids just look at their father, like, you know, especially the father's in the house and you have a good relationship with the father. You look at your father like they're Jesus Christ, basically. And that's what you want to do. What did you see for yourself as a teenager once you got to be big like your dad? How did you want to contribute to the world? Yeah, I don't think this is no offense to my pops. I thought my pops was cool. Like I knew my pops was a cool guy. I don't know. How, you know, like he just kind of exuded cool. And I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to be cool like my pops. If someone had asked me, you know, I, didn't, I knew I didn't want to be a super or anything. But like if someone, I was like, my dad's cool. Like he dresses cool. He is cool. People like him. He's cool. <laughs> like He dances well. So I knew I wanted to be cool like my dad. But I saw fifth grade in Peter Pan and my life was changed. Like mm-hmm. I saw magic. And he stage. took you. He did. He did take me. He took me to see Peter Pan. And, I, you know, I left wanting. To, I said, I want to be Peter Pan. I want to fly around that stage like I'm Peter. And he said, you know, it's not going to happen because Peter's played by a woman. But like. <laughs> uh, um, did you know that when you saw the play? No, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, you know, he also took me to see Beauty and the Beast, too. Like, I got mm-hmm. to see theater as a kid, which was cool. But it was always sort of musicals. And so I knew I wanted to be a performer in the theater. But it wasn't until I saw John Leguizamo at 13 that my entire life changed. Because it's one thing to see a, a flying white little girl. And it's another thing to see a teacup and a beast. And then it's another to see a, yourself. Like, just a person. A mm-hmm. Colombian kid from Queens. Whoa, like me? Wait, on Broadway? But like not singing? Like just being himself and telling stories? And all these people, mainly white people in the audience, are are laughing, crying in it without blinking? And my life changed. My life cha- I mean, I remember going home that night and going in the shower and like rehearsing. Rehearsing what? Who knows? You know, like doing his lines, doing my own lines. Just I remember a long ass shower because we had one bathroom. So I know it was long because he was like, hurry up. You saw it for free. How how did that? I saw all those things for free. That's a good question. I don't know if my parents ever bought tickets to the theater. Like, and that's one of the blessings I think of being in New York and hopefully. I don't know if you, if you want it enough and you know, you know, like someone's like, Hey, we have tickets to this or go to this or yeah. Cause we definitely didn't pay for it, but that became what I used to audition for a theater high school. I used it to audition for a college, a freak uh, monologue, a freak monologue. Yeah. You have to do usually like a contemporary and a classical. So I did, you know, mm-hmm. I don't remember the Shakespeare's I did. I do remember for college. I did Hamlet. I don't remember for high school. And I did a, a monologue from Freak for both of them, for high school and then for college, many years later, because I didn't go to college right after high school. And so that's how impactful it it was for me, which says a lot. Actually, I haven't thought about that in, in a minute. 
it says a lot that for the contemporary, I didn't use someone else's words, meaning like I didn't use like a like a play that has pretend people. I used something that was someone's life, which is the kind of work I have now mainly make is work that is about my life. So I hadn't put those pieces together, but yeah. <laughs> Your dad had this game that he taught you to play in the park. Yeah, where are they going, where are they coming from, and why do they walk that way? And we play this all the time, all the time. And enough that I would just sort of do it on the subway. Like, I think any kid who grew up in New York, their imaginations must be kind of special if you took the subway, because this is way before iPhones and stuff. And so if you weren't a reader, you had probably so many games in your head that you were doing to keep yourself busy. I know I had a bunch. And a bunch of secret games. I would like secretly race people that had no idea I was racing them. <laughs> like, you're just doing all this stuff to keep yourself entertained. And this game my dad taught me was where are they going? Where are they coming from? Why do they walk that way? And sometimes he would, he would take me out of school early and we would go to like Central Park or any park and we would get some like hot dogs or pizza and we would watch people at the entrance of a park. And the game is watching someone and, and asking those three questions. Where are they going? Where are they coming from? Why do they walk that way? And I later came to understand this game and many of my father's coolness or this thing I, I considered his coolness and his ability to fit in as this sort of form of pretend. My dad was also a performance artist and an actor. He could speak just enough of all the languages he needed to speak, you know, and he could speak street and he could, you know, he had multiple tongues and he could speak white and he could speak black and, and Puerto Rican, Latino, you know, like he could speak it all. And a lot of that, I think, comes from that game. But also just as I've later come to understand as, as what we call code switching, as we call the mathematics, a body of culture has to do when they walk into a room in order to feel safe and take up space and not be too much and be this. And my father was a master at this. He was a master assimilator, pretender, study of human beings. And I think one of the reasons I became such a good performer and artist is because he taught me to look at how I was entering a room and how others were entering a room and how others carry themselves and what it means to carry yourself with confidence and what it means to walk with your head up, your head down, your chest up or pace or, or gait. We really studied people. Do you think that someone can learn to do that? Or do you think some people are just inherently born more observant than other people? Because later on, you talk about how your dad would tell the girls you're dating, you know, to be careful because Chris is always, <laughs> always listening. And my dad still says that. I was just home and he... He was walking into the garage with this Dr. Bronner soap. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you because you're going to write about it or put it in a podcast. <laughs> it's like, just leave me alone for a sec. <laughs> so he's still, you know, he says it jokingly, but also maybe I will. I just did, right? Like, he's not wrong. I think some people are more observant. Yes. I think some people are more thoughtful. Some people, you know, we all receive the universe in different ways. You know, we all have desires we need to express in different ways when we come into this earth or this go around. Can it be trained? Yes, I think so. And I think that's curiosity. I am like so grateful for my curiosity. I'm a curious person. I love, I go into rabbit holes. <laughs> like I go through them. I take the journey. 
I take the pill, I open the door, I like go through the journey. I'm grateful for my curiosity for better and for worse because it's not always great. But I think it can be trained with practice. But I was a curious person and I wanted to know how to live in this world, how to operate in this world to the best of my ability. And so I think there is a lot of it is inherent. Because you know, also some people are so chill and peaceful that they don't really need to be like, <laughs> they're good. They're just like, this is it. I'm coasting. I'm happy. I'm content. So when you were auditioning for Cal Arts with the Freak Monologue, what did you envision for yourself going into your adult life? Yeah. So after high school, I'd done some theater, some off-Broadway, and, and I didn't go to college. I auditioned only for one school. I thought I was the best actor in the world. So I only auditioned for Juilliard, the, like the acting school of the universe. And I didn't get in. I was shocked. I was shocked. I was like, what? Who only auditions for one school is, it says a lot. I didn't get in. I did some off-Broadway stuff. And then I went to Miami with my family because they were like, we're always moving there. I became a personal trainer on South Beach. A uh, very different life. I think I was like 20 pounds heavier. There were a lot of muscles. <laughs> I swam on the beach. Just a very different, someone's ideal life. I was living someone's ideal life. But I was not happy. I knew that. And I missed acting. But I also knew, I was like, I, I don't want to just go back to New York or go to LA. I, I don't know why I wanted to study it. I think a part of me believed I loved it so much that I wanted to know it intimately. Like I wanted to know its history. And that says a lot about me and my work and culture, right? Like I believe in history. I wanted to know where's this coming from? What does it look like? What does it sound, you know, all the flavors and depths of it. So I auditioned for a bunch of colleges. I got into most of them and I chose CalArts. What did I envision for myself? I always kind of thought I would make it, whatever that is. I always thought I would just be fine. I didn't think Brad Pitt or anything. Like, I did not think Brad Pitt, but I didn't think, I was just kind of like, yeah, this is right. Did you even think about the idea, the fact that, hey, I'm Latino and I'm going into this mostly white industry and there's certain things I may have to do to be accepted or anything like that. I need to hide my heritage or really not yet. Really... Not yet. Because until I discovered the Ruby Rosa moment, which we can get into like now mm -hmm. or later, like, yeah, go ahead and t tell the story. Cause you met Peter in school, right? He was in the yeah. playwriting program. Yeah. So I didn't think about it when I was auditioning because maybe it was one of the joys of living in New York. And then I lived in Miami, which is basically little Cuba. Like I was with my people. And I wasn't under the gaze of whiteness so extremely that Hollywood is. Hollywood is a heightened level of the dangers of whiteness. And CalArts is a bunch of freaks, you know? It's like a bunch of great weirdos and artists. Like, so I felt sort of safe. And you don't know that you're actually only... I didn't know until I read this article. So I'm in college and my buddy, Peter, a playwright, sends me a Vanity Fair article about the Dominican man that James Bond was based on, Porfirio Rubirosa. And my entire world is shattered. Because like I said earlier, I was running around my building pretending to be James Bond with all my Nerf guns on all these missions. I was pretending to be a white British guy. And it clicked. What if I wasn't pretending to be them, but I was allowed to be myself 
or my father, you know, this character I loved as a child looked like me, looked like my community, looked like Queens, looked like light, looked like so many people that are not a white man. And then, and then it's like, I saw it. I just saw my difference in this world in an instant, like that article in an instant revealed so much to me. Why am I the one of the only bodies of culture in this school? What does that mean? The weight of it, the weight of difference. I started to feel it. It was really sort of shocking. And we're talking so much about this. I haven't had the conversation about auditioning for these schools in a long time. But again, I chose a Leguizamo monologue. Like I chose, not consciously, work written by a body of color. Not consciously. But wow, thank God I did. Because <laughs> there's not so much in the grand scheme. And yes, it was that article that like really it changed my life. That article changed my life. Mainly because Ruby Rosa, this epic slash problematic warning slash aspiring person slash enigma, you know, twice the richest man in the world, lived all over the world, best friends with Sinatra. JFK, the Rat Pack, ran guns for the mob, lived in Hitler's Germany, lived in Fidel's Cuba, raced Ferraris at Le Mans twice, flew B-52 bombers for fun as a hobby, boxed, like, what? <laughs> like, and just sort of vanishes from society. He also was obsessed with whiteness and the white gaze to the point where it made him change his body, you know, get a nose job, whiten his skin. To the point where it didn't allow him to speak up against this horrible, horrendous genocide. To the point where I think it drove him to his death. Quite literally. This need mm. to be seen by others. Tried to be an actor in Hollywood, was denied. Crazy. Just crazy story. And it really changed my life. And from that moment, I started to know, what is my culture? What didn't I learn? What conversations didn't I have with my parents? All this, yeah. Why did yeah, my I manager want me to cut my hair and get a nose job and all of this stuff? Hollywood and all of that. Yeah. You did a deep dive into his life, which culminated in a play called The Real James Bond. But what was the timeline of that from you first reading that article to you completing the writing of the one man show? A long time. I believe the first draft. Well, the first draft of the play in my computer was 2014. That's okay. of the play. I read the article in 2011. So that's not a long time, man. Oh, that's not, not a, long, not a time. long time? In in the creative process? Like, it took me three <laughs> years to finish my first book. I mean, I get it. You know, you're like, <laughs> you're you're sleeping in your car. And, you know, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of stuff has gone on between you first reading the article and you finishing that play. But there's one other moment. Well, that's the, the draft. Palace. That's not when we performed it. Okay. That's the a draft. draft where I invite people to my house. I'm like house sitting in to hear it, to hear a bad play. That's like a bad <laughs> version. It was alive in me for so long. We didn't premiere it until 2018, 2019. And then you were supposed we, like, to go on tour during the, right before the pandemic. Oh, a huge tour. It was going to be epic. Yeah. I want to talk about how you got into meditation because that's a funny story <laughs> that also happened in college yeah and by the way these stories most of them are in your book so you know obviously if people want to get the, the detailed version of the story then they'll have to go and read the book yeah i was 
was in college and a beautiful young woman uh, was across the grassy knoll and she came over to me and she said, we'd never spoken. And she said, do you meditate? And I said, yes. <laughs> Not only did I say yes, I said, I meditate twice a day. You're like, I just finished meditating. So <laughs> yeah. you should ask that. <laughs> she could have asked me anything and I would have said, I would have said yes to anything. Yeah. Do you fly fish? Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. I That's love fly ash. fishing. <laughs> you know, uh, it's all about the wrist. And we started dating. We hung out. We started dating. And I and I maintained this lie, meaning like she would wake up and she'd be like, hey, I'm going to sit. You want to join me? And I'd be like, oh, I got to get to class. I got to work on this thing. Like, I'll do it later. Then move on. Like, oh, I'll work it out. And I mean, I looked into it. Like, I went to the library, looked at like a meditation for dummies book. Like, <laughs> I tried it actually. It was miserable. It was miserable. You know, one to two minutes were just like, what am I doing? And then when I turned 21, we've been dating for about a year. So I maintained this life for like a year. And I turned 21 and she was so excited. Oh my gosh, she couldn't wait to take me. She was so hyped. And I was like, oh, tight. Like, maybe she got me those Converse I really wanted. And she had a plane ticket and she got me a plane ticket to Barry, Massachusetts to attend a silent retreat for seven days. And she started to cry. She was so happy. She was like, I see the work you're putting in. <laughs> I'm so happy to give this to you. And I was like, oh, cool, 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 cool. Tight. And I didn't tell her and I went. I went. I went with her. We went together to this silent retreat. And it was the most difficult slash greatest thing I have ever done in my entire life. And I have sat every day since and deepened my relationship to to really to to Buddhism quite deeply every day since. And we broke up shortly after. I basically told her, I told her immediately after. It's not why we broke up. It's not not why we broke up. And it is the greatest lie I've ever told and the greatest gift I've ever received. Beautiful. Since we're on the subject of relationships, then your friends used to call you the white girl whisperer. (laughs) And then that led to you having this epiphany that you're no longer going to date white girls, in which case you did the next most obvious thing, which is you wrote a New York Times op-ed about it. How the hell did that happen? I told you, I like I go rabbit holes, but I have a tendency to do them publicly and write them all down. It's just kind of my style for better or worse. You know, a lot of that actually ties to Rubirosa. A lot of that ties to Rubirosa and the title of this book. I remember this night. So the book was born the night I went to see Tanahasi Coates give a talk. And he speaks about race in this country, black and white. He's brilliant. Most read article in the history of the internet. I still think so. It might not be anymore. Case for reparations. And black and white, black and white, I raised my hand. I said, as Dominican, Colombian, you know, brown kid from Queens, where does that leave me in the conversation? And he said, not in it. This was a talk you went to. You didn't even want to, I mean, you didn't plan to go to this talk. I didn't even know who he was. I'd never read his work. I read all this Somebody was going and said, hey, Chris, you want to go with us? Yo, someone I had just met who took my storytelling workshop. I used to teach this. Oh, so cool. Trade School LA. I think they're actually sort of like, Different cities have different chapters. 
but I would teach for them. I would teach a one night, like three hour workshop. And instead of for money, people could bring things and you could ask for five things. And something I always asked for was an invitation to someplace cool. And the three times that happened were incredible. Like, so highly recommend if you have the means to barter in a way where you say like, offer people to invite you someplace cool, they probably will invite you someplace cool. And so this guy, Hake, who works for the Los Angeles Poverty Department, he was going to this talk. This is what's crazy. I don't even know if I put this specific detail in the book. He didn't have a second ticket. He only had a ticket for himself that he stood online for for hours. And he said, I will hold your place in line and then I'll leave when we go in. You, mm. should, you should see him more than me. No idea who this guy was. No idea who Ta-Nehisi Colts was. And really, Hake, I've only met for three hours in a workshop I taught. And I went, right? Again, curiosity. I love how curious I am. I like go into the rabbit hole. So I got this invitation, hung out with this guy, Hake. We chatted on this, on this line and he was like, cool, I'm out. And I'm like, are you sure this is crazy? And he was like, yeah, trust me, just go. So I go, it's in a library in downtown LA, pretty small event. And yeah, I ask him this question. I don't know who this man is. And he says, not in it. You know, in this world of black and white, I say, Dominican, Colombian, where am I? And he goes, not in it. And I remember going home, freaking shattered. Before I went home, I, I went to see my girlfriend who was white at the time. And something just clicked. Like, I was like, what does it mean to not be in it? Where's my dad? Where's, again, where's Queens? Where's my building? There's Jackson Heights. Brownness is like everything. I thought of meditation. I thought of Buddhism. I thought of like, there is no fixed endpoint. Everything is fluid. Everything is in the middle, right? I thought of gender. I thought of like, what does it mean to be binary? This, you know, like, why do we have to be one thing? I thought of this, that, pass, fail. I just thought of like the middle space. And then I thought of Ruby Rosa. And I thought of how many white women he dated and married and was obsessed with. And I thought about every movie I ever saw that showed me some brown dude being saved by some white woman movie and TV shows. And I thought of every image of beauty I've been shown that a beautiful woman was white and Eurocentric. I thought of every billboard. I thought of every magazine. I thought of the TV shows. Like I just got crushed by all this in one moment. What that turned into was me breaking up with my white girlfriend. You know, I just couldn't, I couldn't be there. I didn't tell her this. Hard to explain. <laughs> like I, I didn't tell her this. I just said, I, you know, it's not you, it's me, me. <laughs> which is true. <laughs> and then, and then I, I went on this journey and I wrote about this. And, and what I did first was this was a scene in the play, in that real James Bond play called Please Don't Hate Me for Dating White Women, scene six. And that scene got sent to the New York Times. And, and modern. who? This is also crazy. I don't talk about this a lot. I have a bunch of drafts in my e email right now of article pitches I want to make actually and people I want to reach out to at a certain point but I kind of don't rush them they're just like drafts I have one right now to AOC and her team <laughs> like <laughs> I've got one to the Atlantic you know like these drafts I, I have one I'm working on called the colonial capitalistic hangover that I want you know like I just have these drafts and I had a draft of this scene for modern love but I knew it wasn't ready and so I don't know how this, I don't know how this happened, but I was supposed to send it because it had the play script. It had a draft of what that would look like in essay form, that scene. And it had just the scene. 
It was a mess, this email. And I thought I was sending it to my friend, Brian Sonia Wallace, a brilliant writer. And so I send the email and I don't, like I was the wrong draft and I get a response, you know, an automatic response from the New York Times. Thank you for your submission. We'll let you know. And I was like, oh, the fuck? No. And I don't know why I do this as if like these emails are checked. And I send another email to that email that says, don't respond. And I was like, this is a mistake. I didn't mean to send this. My bad. And then I get a phone call the next day from Daniel Jones, the editor of the New York Times. Oh, also, this was like 2.30 in the morning. And he says, I couldn't sleep last night. And I saw an email that said, please don't hate me for dating white women. And I clicked it. And then I immediately saw another email that said this was an accident. And he (laughs) says, I hope it wasn't an accident because I'm very interested in this. And he said, I'm also never checking emails. I just couldn't sleep. And so that's kind of how it how it happened. And then it got published and it went crazy. Got translated into seven different languages. It went all over the world. I got death threats. I got marriage proposals. I had couples who got divorced after being together for 14 years because that article communicated what they couldn't communicate with each other. It was really crazy. It was really insane. And so obviously I, I touched a nerve that like a lot of us are thinking about but not talking about. You said you read all of the comments. Oh my gosh. I read every don't email rec- and comment. Never do it. Never do it. So what Ever. is it psychologically? What is it about you that made you want to read everything, even though you advise other people not to do it? So, I mean, that's now I know not to do it. Look, if any of y'all are working in anything around race in any way, you are going to get some crazy ass. Haters going to hate. That's just real. You're going to get some insane things. I think I'd read them all because there were moments of such beauty. I loved that folks were being seen and there was such gratitude. And that was amazing. And, you know, it was mainly that. But then mm-hmm. you'd get like someone comparing me to Jim Crow. Which I was like, what? <laughs> you'd get ones that were so obviously like you didn't read this. Like you didn't read it. Or if you did read it, you couldn't read it. Like you couldn't read it. Because you would see that it's great, or that it's like a conversation, that it's like, I'm just asking the question, what are we desired to and why? Like, I'm not saying there's nothing in there that says like, don't date white people. What it says is like, why do we sometimes as bodies of culture think that the hand we hold determines our worth more than our own hands? And how much of that is related to media and assimilation? And who am I actually attracted to and why? Really asking the why. Mm-hmm. why are you attracted to this person and so that's what i do i just happen to do it publicly you know but like for some people some white supremacist youtuber with a million followers called me the face of woke racism i was insane i read them all rebecca solnit in her book hope talks about at the end of the day we are survival beings we have that in our blood the need to survive and so when you go out into the jungle the jungle's so beautiful mm-hmm. but if you see the tiger you will never again see the beautiful jungle until the tiger is out of the way because the tiger affects your survival. And so Mm. your eyes stay focused on the tiger. And I got hundreds and hundreds of beautiful thank you messages, gratitude. I feel seen. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But the one or two that would pop out were the tigers and those tigers really hurt me, you know, and they affected my survival. And so that's why Mm -hmm. I think just don't read it. That's my thing now. Don't read it. Just, fall back. Don't read it. 
and do not respond to them. Do not mm-hmm. give them the time of day. Also, I guess, you know, with trolling, I have such a still evolving relationship that I'm like, you would never say this to my face. Mm-hmm. Ever. But that's another trolling conversation for another time. Speaking of curiosity, you've led these storytelling workshops, which is how you and I first interacted, is through your storytelling, the art of storytelling. Talk about the genesis of that and how you sort of leveraged your curiosity into this very vulnerable platform of telling these stories when these things happen to you and then teaching other people how to tell their stories. And what is the genesis of an impactful story? Yeah, so I I just got to think about this again very recently, actually, which is nice. As a kid, I was always looking for my voice. I was like, am I a theater actor? Ooh, maybe I'm a poet. I do a lot of slam poetry. Maybe I do slam poetry. Maybe I'll be on TV. Ooh, this. What about that? Like, I was always looking for me. I was looking to meet me. And side note, one of the things I love the most about meditation is a teacher said to me, he said, why do we meditate? And I loved his answer. He said, it's an opportunity to meet ourselves. And I've always kind of held that. So I was using art to meet me, but very, very different like ways. And I was like, what am I? But I always thought I had to be one, right? Because the jack of all trades is the master of none. That has really always kind of fucked with me. Like, and I do a lot of things, y'all. Like I am the multi-hyphenate to the max. And I always judged myself for that tremendously. Can you like all these things? But what are you a master at, right? You have to be one thing. And then I... Met this woman in a play and we went up to Big Sur and we did a bunch of mushrooms and we got all our stuff stolen while on mushrooms. And then we found our stuff in the dark on mushrooms in Big Sur. It was crazy. It was one of the greatest, funnest, most enlightening experiences of my life. And it's the first time in my life that I felt the feeling of, I have to share this. I have to tell this story. I don't know why, but I have to. I was like, not only is it funny, it's healing, it's medicinal. It just like, it met me in such a divine way. I have to tell this story. That's all I had. That was my only thought. Universe comes through. I get an email. My friend is putting together this storytelling competition, kind of like the moth. Had no idea what the moth was. Very familiar now. Would you like to participate? And I was like, yes, yes, I would. And I won. And I was like, this, this is what I can master. Which story did you tell that you the, won? The, the Big Sur, the Big Sur mushrooms. Okay. With the, yeah. And I was like, this is it. This is what I do. So if I'm telling a poem, it's storytelling. If I'm acting, it's storytelling. If I'm doing this, it's storytelling. Like it's here to facilitate story. And so that night, I had a bunch of friends come and man, man, do I have good friends. I begged eight of my friends to take a four-week class that I'd never taught before for free on storytelling and that it would end in a storytelling sharing. And they said, yes, they agreed for free. They agreed to take something I've never taught like and spend four Tuesdays with me from six to 9 p.m to take this class. And we had a performance at the end and 
A bunch of people came up to me after. When's your next one? Cool. That was eight more people at 15 bucks, you know? And then it happened again. And then it was like eight people at 25 bucks. And then it was eight people at 50 bucks. And then it was thousands of people. I taught for years. I traveled the world teaching storytelling. And it's some of the greatest memories and times of my life. And I've made some of the best friends from people who took my class. Because you want to meet somebody, share stories with them. That's how you like really meet somebody. And I taught this thing. I didn't even know how to teach, you know, and I just, it felt like home. So since then, storytelling has felt like home. And I miss those classes. I mean, I've been busy, but like I, I miss those classes tremendously. Give us a little snapshot of the anatomy of an impactful story. But I think before I do that, I will tell you three things you must be able to do when you're crafting a story. Okay. You have to do these in one simple sentence. Keyword, simple. Simple, simple, simple. What is this story about? That is so hard for people to answer simple. This is about the time my car got broken into. That's simple, right? But it's like, I was here and then this, you know, and like, ah, and then my dad, like, you're like, what? <laughs> you know, take Titanic, for example. What is Titanic about? It's about a ship crashing. What happens on that ship is so much beautiful stuff and like and there's story involved in it, but it's about a ship crashing. Second question, what do you want people to know? But it's got to be simple. I want people to know the love that took place on the boat. I want people to know the cast of characters that took place on the boat. doesn't mean they can't know more things, but we're getting specific. I want them to know about this diamond that was on that boat. Right? You're sort of picking it. You're getting very specific. I want people to know this. It doesn't have to be holy or profound. Simple is often better. Three, what are you grateful for? Huge question. Because we do not share wounds, we share scars. We do not share wounds, we share scars. Now, if you're trained and you're good and you're seasoned and you're conditioned, you can share stories from the rim of the wound. Because mm -hmm. the rim is what's healing first. And so you can be aware of the wound, but you can also, you're in the healing and you're speaking from that place. And so what are you grateful for? Because even the, even the hardest trauma in your life, if you're here telling me a story about it, you are here telling me a story about it. You've ideally found the medicine, you're here, you can share it with me, and you're more full because of it. So those are the three sort of questions that are essential when I teach class or work with people. Like, you got to answer every story in that way. And then the elements of a good story are just, they're honest. A good story is honest. It knows what it is, hence those questions. A good story is you. It's genuine. And so part of that is when I teach class, I ask my students to get really intimate with what they like and what they don't like. Really intimate, especially with what you don't like. Like, why does something turn you off? Why does it turn you on? Why does it boil your blood? Why is it boring? Why did you just yawn here? Why are you excited? Why are you holding your breath right now? Like, really move through the world in an intimate way where you're like, I'm really aware of what's happening and why I'm so engaged or, or disengaged right now. And if you get really intimate and yummy with yourself in that way, you will understand what Juicy Story is. So you said everything is a story. And 
it's either a story we've been made to believe or it's a story we've chosen to believe and knowing the difference is profound. Can you give us an example of, of that in your own life, a story that you were made to believe versus one that you chose to believe? Yeah, it's, it's the boys on TV, right? It's thinking I needed to be and sound like them in order to be worthy of having a story worth telling. It's hustle culture. It's thinking I need to go, 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 do, 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 have, 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 what's next, what's next, what's next, versus like nap as resistance. Take a nap. You ain't gotta, you ain't gotta hustle so much. Like you get to enjoy your life. It's unplugging from, from the gaze. And that can, you know, often in, in my work, it's the gaze of whiteness, but it's also the gaze of capitalism. It's the gaze of colonialism. It's the gaze of the American dream. All of this has been put on you from the moment you were born, trying to tell you what you're worthy of and capable of. And I believed so much of these stories about myself. And it wasn't until I started unplugging, doing that matrix work. You've seen the matrix. It's hard to wake up. So, so you got to pull these freaking tubes out of your spine and your neck. Like Until I started putting my freedom out loud and reclaiming my story and my experience, no one took notice. But all of a sudden, when I wasn't trying to you know, get it right or be like them, all of a sudden, everyone was like, oh, tight. This is great. <laughs> So that's what I mean. Like every, yeah, it's exactly, that's my, you know, that's my motto of teaching. It's all a story you've been made to believe or chosen to believe, knowing the difference is profound. Or, mm -hmm. you know, until the lion learns to write, every story will glorify the hunter. This is why the lion must write. We need to take back our stories and our experiences and our truths. And that's in small ways and large ways. It's in societal ways, but it's also in your relationships, in your practices and your habits, right? Why am I doing this? Who's it for? Me or someone else? So you have three profound projects that you've created in the last few years. One, The Real James Bond was Dominican, your book, Brown Enough, and the Ruby Rosa podcast, which is not a small feat. I, I listened to that and it was like, it's very highly produced and you list off <laughs> the credits of, you know, 20 people at the end of each episode. So how did you know which one to do first, second, third, you know, because I know how the creative process is for myself. Some of these ideas, you've been thinking about it for years before you finally get traction on it. And we talked about how the real James Bond was, was shelved. So talk about that process of creating those works and how you decided to prioritize them. I can't take credit. The universe is kind of like, I gotta, I gotta give, I, I gotta give, uh, shout out to the universe. <laughs> I gotta give the universe credit because, you know, Lord knows I had plans and God laughs at plans a lot. Like, and I believe in, in being moved. That's something I, I hold in high regard. Maybe attach it to my curiosity, but like I allow myself to be moved. You know, in the opening of the book, I, I talk about, being moved and asking people to allow themselves to be moved. Movement is what draws me to my curiosity. Like I see an article and I'm like, oh, this clearly moves something deep inside my spirit. Let me go with it. Someone says something at a talk. Oh, this clearly moved. You know, I'm like really intimate with what moves me. And so I wrote the play. I did the play with my whole heart in it. That's another thing. I put my heart into it. I'm always writing, always, always, always writing. You know, I don't know what it's for. That's another thing I believe in, like, just write, just make, whatever your thing is, just go. Like, it, how the puzzle will fall into place will be revealed to you. 
don't wait for someone to give you the final picture of the puzzle for you to start putting the pieces together and make and, and making the art. So I'm always writing. We're doing the play. My whole heart is in it. The New York Times thing happens. Someone meets me at an I, I, I teach on the board of this incredible organization that, do you know Creative Futures? Are you a part of that? It's a mentorship program for disenfranchised youth and young mm-hmm. adults. We put them through this incredible 12-week training. Mine is the storytelling, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we get them paid jobs with some insane companies. I mean, these are like youth that just got out of prison, early motherhood, bad luck, homelessness. And we go to like Apple Music, Spotify, the Rams, and we say, here's this person you would never look at for a job. We put them through this 12-week course. We'll pay them. We'll pay them. You don't even have to pay them. Let them come in and work for you. We'll pay them. And if you're happy, after three months, give them a job. We have like a 100% success rate. Really incredible. Anyway, I was at an event for that. And this guy met me and he had a podcast. And he said, can I have you on the podcast? Ari, Ari Anderson. Millennials Don't Suck is the podcast. (laughs) And he had me on. And he was like, dude, this James Bond thing is insane. What? I mean, you're t- this is insane. And he said, we should make that a podcast. I, you know, like everyone in the mother was, you know, but he's like, ah, this is crazy. This is crazy. And he met someone else who he told about, you cool if I bring this person in? I was like, sure. Y'all want to find the way to make this thing. And, and then that got to Stitcher's hands. And Stitcher, you know, those 20 or something people and the genius is there. And the, you're right, the production. I mean, we flew all over the world for this thing. Like we get FBI files. We interview people who knew the man when he was alive. Like it's a trip. It's incredible. Really, thank God for everyone at Stitcher. And we made this 10-part docuseries, which then also they optioned the book. So the book is also a podcast, Brown Enough, which is a 40-episode weekly show. That's out now. And the whole time I'm waiting for this book to happen, you know, I I meet you, I meet Megan. Megan says, I got an agent. I send a proposal to her. She, Colleen, so patient with me (laughs) because I didn't really have a book in me, you know, but she really, she really liked what I was talking about or writing about or making. And she helped someone doula. She helped me do like birth this thing. What's it look like to look at this middle space? You know, and I also believe in community and other people's geniuses and a village. Like, just because my name's on the book, right? Like the podcast, it says Ruby Rosa with Christopher Rivas, but like, how many people are in the credits? A village of, of freaking geniuses, geniuses. And I love, I love being honest about what I don't know. And with the book, I had so many incredible editors and sensitivity readers and people who just believed in me. That's genius too. And all of that sort of gathered in this in this way, but really that's universe timing. Like I was talking with my partner the other day and she said to me, do you remember when you were waiting for all of these things? You were like waiting for the contract suffering, you know, like in one year I launched two podcasts, did my first series regular on TV and wrote a book in one year. She was like, you were waiting for every single contract all at once. And you were so stressed. You were suffering. like, And now here we are. And with those projects, they were all supposed to come out earlier and at different times, but they got pushed back and this and this. We're going to wait and three months later and this. And so it's just like, that's, that's the universe. Like universe has got a time. They got a timing. 
that I have to fall back on. You know, I got fall back tattooed on my arm somewhere. There you go. You can kind of see it. Like that's my big reminder, you know, when I'm grasping or pushing too much, I like to fall back, you know, just fall back, keep trusting the work and the art. Yeah. I know you had the multi-city tour that got canceled. Is it postponed? Like what's going to happen with that? We are going to do the play again. It'll probably be a, a longer six week New York city run. We're focused on this book right now. And yes, we're going to do the play again. Uh, there's some other things and pieces of stuff falling into place, but that would be my shout out to the universe in a public way, like six week New York city run and then lay that baby to rest. So you mentioned you write every day and you keep taught storytelling. What's the difference in teaching something versus writing a book full of stories? Like, how is that process for you? This being your first book. Yeah. So writing, like I said, I write a lot, but mainly like in the notes in my phone. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just, Me too. You know, my, <laughs> my notes is crazy. And then what happens is it gets so crazy that I usually go and I'll, I'll be honest, I usually go like Big Sur and I go to a place without internet and without cell phone service. And I look at all of my writing, all of the puzzles. And I start to see if there's a through line or a theme in them. And that's when I really put the pump. That's the work for me. I think for some people, the writing is the work. I'm very grateful for my ability to like regurgitate onto the page. I can write. That's something I can do. If something moves me, I write it down, voice to text. Like I'm just always sort of giving little tidbits and things and letting my curiosity take me. But the work for me is in the puzzle stuff. Now that I have all these things, do they blend? Can they blend? Do they fit with each other? Like, can I make them fit? And that's the work that I do every once in a while. You know, like I've started writing my next book and it's, and it's chaos, but I know it's, I, I know it's along the things of being an artist. Like I know like it's there and, but it's just chaos of a lot. And at some point I will go away and I will start to layer the pieces together in an, in a semi orderly way. You describe the book as not just the story of woe is me for brown people, but a story of yes is us. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, I love that you said that. It's one of my favorite lines. I think we really like our traumas right now because we didn't talk about trauma for so long, you know, so good. Yes, let's talk. Yes, we all have trauma. Trauma's all around us. It's happening. But we are also something worth celebrating. And I didn't want this to be a book of of trauma. I wanted this to also be a book of celebration, celebration of culture, celebration of identity, celebration of individuality, celebration of curiosity and weirdness and love. And so, yeah, this is not just what was me, but yay is us. And so I try to create work and I think I do create work that really celebrates culture because there is enough trauma we experience. Yes, we need to talk about it. We also need to talk about the beauty as well. And speaking of that, you said that names can be medicinal. And I think this is a really important point that I want to include in this conversation. Yeah, I think you have a medicinal name. (laughs) Particularly people who come from different cultures and they come to America, they come Americanize their name to make it easy for white people. That's the thing I get the most of now after these readings, which is so interesting because like I'll read something that has nothing to do with a name, right? A section of the book or 
And it is the most common thing I get is like, my name is Malinali. People have been calling me Molly for years. My name is Anu. I've had people calling me Annie. Like, I mean, I get this message so much. Like something cracks in them when they start to feel seen or they're in a space of belonging where they're like, whoa, I've been letting them dictate who I am. I've been letting whiteness and their comfortableness and their inability to pronounce beautiful language, like to dictate who I am, to dim my light, you know, pun intended, no pun intended, all of the above, like our names, our names, they're one part of how beautiful and unique and expressive bodies of culture can be. Culture is. And I use the term bodies of culture because I think we're far more than color. Like, I don't think that whiteness is trying to take away our color. What they're trying to do is assimilate. Assimilate literally means flatten us, right? Like, turn brown rice into white rice. Like, dim it down, make it more even, take away our culture. Because it's our culture that makes us beautiful and expressive and unique and and flavorful and yummy and vibrant. It's not our color. Your color doesn't make you that way. Your culture makes you that way. And so, I hope this is a book of celebrating our culture. And anyone with an incredible culture-filled, yummy name, I hope you can return to it if you've lost it. Who's the avatar for this book? Who did you write it for, primarily? I'd be lying if I didn't say I, also, I wrote it for myself. The more I live in the world with it, the more I know it's for, I want this book in some high schools. This thing needs mm-hmm. to be required reading. Y'all, we are actively banned. We're, they're, they're banning books again. Books are being banned. And I will tell you, none of the books being banned are written by white people. None of them. Just... Let that sit there for a second. <laughs> like, I had a teacher at an event from Iowa. She said House Law 502. In Iowa, it is illegal for a teacher to mention prejudice or bias. It is illegal mm-hmm. for a teacher to mention prejudice or bias. How do I show up for my students? She asked me. Give them this book. You don't have to say why you're giving it to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> give them the book. Just give it to them. That's all. That's what I want. The more I see it, I'm like, man, I wish I had this book. Because look what John Leguizamo did to me. That's mm-hmm. one moment. That's one moment. One moment gave me enough armor to chase my dreams for the rest of my life. That's just one moment. White people get 197 moments by the time they're eight. Like, <laughs> I have one. I have one. And so, I want this to be armor for the youth. I want this to be, hopefully, their one moment that gives them the courage to follow their dreams. So you got a book, you got the show, you got these amazing podcasts, you're on a television show going into hopefully the fourth season. How are you thinking about success these days? Peace. I'm thinking about it as like not thinking about what's next. I'm thinking about spaciousness. Spaciousness has been like my big meditation as of late. I think hustle and what's next and all of that stuff, the American dream fills up your body. It fills you up. It fills up your mind. And I'm interested in spaciousness, the peace that comes with spaciousness. And I desire to be more spacious. I think we should end there. Just want to acknowledge you for your journey and for not giving up. And we didn't talk about you sleeping in your car and all of that, but you know, <laughs> you've been through you've been through a lot. And it's interesting because one of the reasons why I like to tell the sort of retrospective journey of someone's life on these podcasts is because I feel like if you just focus on the highlight reels, people don't appreciate how you arrived at this place. 
and it makes you more relatable. It makes your story more relatable. And I feel like you're doing that for other people through this, you know, the real James Bond narrative that you have taken the baton from those few people who wrote those books and you're exposing that story to more brown kids to hopefully have the same type of impact that it had on you. And that's not a small passive thing that takes a lot, you know, and creating a one man show takes organization. It takes fundraising. It takes promotion. It takes a lot. And writing a book, as I said, is not a passive thing either. So it takes a lot. And I, I just want to celebrate all of the self coaching and motivation you've had to do for yourself going through that process and not knowing what was going to happen on the other side. And thank you for coming on here and sharing your story. Hopefully somebody listening to this today or some point in the future is going to hear your story and they're going to do a deep dive on to some of the things you've talked about and read your book and, and take the baton and go even further. So thank you very much. Yeah. Take that baton, please, <laughs> please, please, please. <laughs> it's a heavy uh, baton. Yeah. <laughs> Running with it. But I think about that, right? Like I've been thinking about ancestry lately. I just want to mm-hmm. be a good ancestor. And if that's what that means, you allowed other people to carry the baton to take it even further. Then you do, then you were a good ancestor. Bro, this is just the beginning, man. How old are you right now? 35. 35, yeah. You're still young, man. So <laughs> we've got a lot more coming from you, Christopher Rivas. Thank you, sir. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Thank everyone. you, man. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Christopher Rivas. Christopher's book, Brown Enough, is available everywhere books are sold. You can follow Christopher on social media at Christopher underscore underscore Rivas, which is R-I-V-A-S. And of course, I'll drop links to everything else that he and I discussed in the show notes on my website, lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with luminaries like Ed Milet, director Ava DuVernay, Spoken word artist Saul Williams, chef Marcus Samuelson, and many others who share how they found their path and purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show, where you'll see a drop down menu with subjects like people who've taken leaps of faith, people who've overcome financial struggles and health challenges, etc., You can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. If you search Light Watkins Podcast, you'll see a playlist of all the videos. And you can also listen to the raw, unedited version of the podcast if you join my Happiness Insiders online community. There, you can listen to all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit-chat if you're into that kind of thing. And you can also access the episodes a day early with no interruptions. So that's thehappinessinsiders.com. And you'll get access to my 108-day meditation challenge, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. I'm always trying to bring you all conversations with the best guests possible. And one thing that makes the job of securing these top guests much easier is if they see listeners liking and rating this show. When someone invites me to come onto their podcast, one of the first things I do is I look at the show's ratings and reviews And other guests do that with my show as well. So if you want to help me help you by getting these top guests, please take 10 seconds to rate and review this show. 
Your review may be the one that gets that guest that you're hoping I bring on to say yes to my invitation. You never know. Here's how you leave a review. Quickly, just glance down at your phone on the Apple Podcast app screen. Go to the podcast name. Click on it. Scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see the five blank stars and a little box where you can write something. Tap the star on the right if you really like this podcast and leave a review with just the couple of episodes that you would recommend for a new listener to start with. And that's it. And the whole thing could take you less than a minute. So thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.